if you have been at Redeemer for any length of time, you know that we harp on and we drive home the reality of God's gracious love towards us. This is what we major on. This is what we talk about. We talk about the grace of God a lot here, and rightly so, because the Bible has a lot to say about the grace of God. And apart from his grace towards us, we would have no hope. Grace is where the power to transform our hearts and our lives and our relationships come from. But in the area that we live in and in many Christian circles, who God is as, lavishly gracious, as a lavishly gracious God is widely misunderstood or rarely driven home and hopped on to the extent that it should be. We at Redeemer believe that, the, that only through experiencing his love and grace through the gospel, that is the only thing that has the power to go beyond changing our behavior to actually transforming our hearts. Go beyond modifying our behavior and take people from death to life. So it comes at no surprise to you that, guess what we're going to talk about this morning? <laughs> the grace of God. That's what we're going to talk about. But the angle from which we're going to talk about it is a little bit different than normal. <clears throat> it's from a little bit different angle, a little bit different approach than we typically talk about. It's an angle on grace that, that we don't directly kind of uh, address all that often here, even though we talk about grace as much as we do. But if you listen for it, you will hear and recognize that there are vibrations of this kind of angle or approach to grace all the time. And the way we talk about it. The angle of grace that we're going to be looking at this morning is the offensiveness of grace. The offensiveness of grace. It's good news, right? But it has another side. It's also offensive. Uh, I told a friend of mine that I was pre what I was preaching on, and they go, what? What do you mean offensive? Grace is a good thing, isn't it? Which is another reason why we need to talk about the offensiveness of grace. Because while grace is good news and is a great thing, it is also part of what makes it such good news and so great is that there's a bad news side to it. There's a hard to digest side to it. And so there's a need to talk about that. The bad news side of grace deeply offends our natural self, deeply offends the default self that we live in, and deeply offends the culture that we live in. We initially recoil at it, this side of grace, with anger, with frustration, with confusion, and even bitterness. One pastor said, you want to tick people off? Tell them what they must do. But he said, you want to make them really mad? Tell them what they can't do. Tell them what they're unable to do. And that's the side of grace. This is where the offensive side of grace comes in because it tells you what you're unable to do it tells us what we are helplessly unable to do on our own and it exposes in doing that exposes our need for grace and none of us like to be exposed none of us like to feel needy god actually revealed to me not too long ago how much i struggle with and could be offended by grace in my life and even in other people's lives I thought for long, I'm a grace guy because the Bible is a grace book and I teach this stuff. But what I've come to realize 
over the years is that until you are offended by grace, you might not truly understand and grasp the fullness that we get with grace, that comes with the grace of God. This morning, how we're, the passage we're going to be in to look at this is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, the vineyard parable. This parable has been hard for many people to understand. It is a difficult parable. When I chose parables for the summer, I didn't anticipate how hard they are to get into and navigate. But it's, it's been uh, challenging, but also very rewarding. So this is partly because the reason why it's hard for many people, this parable is, is partly because we often misunderstand who we are in the parable. And therefore, we misunderstand who God is and what he's like in this parable. And so we're going to try to navigate that together and wrestle and struggle with it with, uh, together. So if you can or are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. We do this because we believe God still speaks. Speaks. And so we stand to attention. Our God is speaking to us. So Matthew 21 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the, labor, with the laborers for a denarius a day, uh, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard came to his foreman, called the laborers and paid them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those, uh, when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be the first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would reveal the reality and the depth of your grace. That you would prick our hearts in the specific areas and places that each of us need it. And that you would bring us back once again uh, to the goodness and grace of what you offer to us. Pray that your spirit would speak powerfully through your word, that you would be seen and believed, and that we would behold your glory through this text this morning. We ask that you would do what only you can do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is not a very popular parable. It's not a very well-liked parable. 
So let's break down what's going on in this passage, and then we'll try to explain it. The master of the house goes to the market, goes to the marketplace five different times, excuse me, five different times of the day to hire day laborers to work for him and his And he goes out at 6 a.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. And then the workday, typically during this culture and this time period, would end at 6 p.m. Excuse me. Um, But it's only with the first group, the 6 a.m. group, that he makes an agreement on what uh, they will be paid, that that's negotiated, that's discussed. It's only with them that there's this back and forth of sorts of what is agreed upon wage, fair wage for them to earn. And so they agree to a denarius, which is a typical uh, amount for a day laborer, for the amount that a day laborer would make for one day. But in groups two through four, he, there's no negotiation. He simply says, <clears throat> I will give whatever is right, meaning... They have to trust that this master will stand by his word and give them what is fair for their time and their labor. It's kind of scary, but they're trusting a verbal contract which is not abnormal for this time. And the truth is is that they needed the money, right? And no one else was coming up to them, so they took what they could get. But with the last group, the 11th hour, the 5 p.m. people, he doesn't promise anything. He just sends them to work, and they are completely going off on hope. That's the 11th hour, and they're hopeless. No one else is coming for sure. No one hires anyone on the 11th hour of the workday, right? And so there's no discussion about pay. There's no discussion about amounts, and so they go because they are, they are helpless and hoping that the master will give them at least something. So the story is building here, and you must understand for this last group, they are absolutely desperate. And so here we need to note a few things about day laborers. They were the lowest of the workers at that time. In fact, they were treated worse and worse off than the slaves in the ancient Near Eastern culture at the time. They had no rights. There's no guarantee of work. They were at the mercy of someone hiring them. Day in and day out, every single day. So if they got hired one day, it doesn't mean they have guaranteed work the next. And they were dependent on that person to decide what they would pay them. It was up to the masters, up to the person who was hiring them. There's no guarantee of a fair wage for them. And so often what happens then for these people is they're struggling to survive. They're struggling to provide. And it's a hard, unpredictable, and helpless way of life to go and be needy every day, to be trusting that someone, hoping that someone would come and pick you up and that they would actually pay you what your labor is worth, right? So we have five groups hired today working in the vineyard, all with different expectations and only one with a certainty of pay. And so now the stage is set for the second half of this parable, verses 8 to 16. A work day is done And everyone's about to get paid now for their work. And here's the shock of the parable. The people who only worked one hour, the 11th hour people, the 5 p.m. people get paid for a full day's work. They get paid various amount for a full day's work, the fair wage. They get paid the same amount that's agreed upon between the master and the 6 a.m. workers. 
So if I am one of the 6 a.m. workers, I'm thinking as I see this happen, wait, if they get that much for one hour of work, for one hour of labor, that means I might get 12 times that amount. That I get denarius for each hour that I worked, too. That I'm thinking this is what's going to happen because that's what makes sense. I get a day's wage for every hour of work. I'm thinking I've hit the jackpot with this master. This is my day, right? We're going to eat good tonight. But then he pays the next group the same, who worked longer, and the next the same. And he gets to the first group and pays them the same, the one denarius as well. And he pays them all the same amount of money, no matter how long they worked or what they did or how hard they worked. And upon receiving it, the 6 a.m. workers were furious. The word that's used in verse 11 is that they grumbled. It describes their response receiving their payment, but it's in the imperfect tense. Meaning it's not just a grumbling initially. It means it's a, it's a kind of demeanor. It's a stance towards this master of this house. It's a judgment on his character of what he's like. That they're grumbling at him in this constant way. And to be honest, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, rightfully so. (laughs) They should be grumbling at this guy. Because as they point out in verse 12, they've worked all day in the scorching heat, doing all, if not most, of the work. But the 11th hour workers, they only worked for one hour in the coolest part of the day. And the understandable complaint is you have made them equal to us. But they have not done equal work that we have done, right? But you have made them equal by paying them the same amount. They are right in thinking they are better in this area. They did more. They deserve more. They earned their wage. They earned their money. And how dare you make them equal to us? Because they didn't earn it. They didn't work for it like we did. But the owner responds and says, I'm doing you no wrong. I'm paying you what I said I would. You agreed. This is a fair amount for your work. And so I'm doing nothing wrong. Am I not allowed to do what I want with my money when I want to do it? And I have chosen to be generous. I've chosen to be gracious to them and be fair to you. I've chosen to be just to you. The owner is actually technically correct. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything wrong. He's doing what he has the freedom to do with his money. And he's owning up to his agreement. And notice the first hour laborers are not complaining. Right? There's no complaint in them about underpayment or an overpayment. They think, man, he made a mistake. Let's get out of here. Right? Before he wants, if he realized what he did, let's get out. But... The uh, other workers are complaining about the, the master's generosity. They're complaining not about an underpayment, but they're complaining about an overpayment, right? They're complaining about his grace, about his generosity. They are not complaining about him not keeping his word, about him not keeping the agreement that they agreed upon. They're complaining that this master is too gracious. He's too generous to these people. So the question is, if the owner is right, if he's not technically doing anything wrong, why are we still so bothered by this? I mean, when you read that, it should bother you. 
there should be something in you that says, this isn't fair. Why do we feel that something is wrong if he's not doing anything wrong? I told you, this is not a very well-liked parable. <laughs> in fact, usual pastors whose sermon I consult uh, on how they handle a particular text before I preach it, none of those pastors have preached on the text, despite having done a series in Matthew. <laughs> It seems as if they sidestepped and avoided it. And maybe after this sermon you think, man, pastor, you should have done the same thing. Um, But this parable is deemed by some pastors as the annoying parable. One said that it's like the teacher who tells the kids to line up for lunch. And everyone rushes to line up up first, to be the first one to get it. And then the teacher goes to the back of the line and says, this is the front. And reverses it. That's not a very well-liked teacher. (laughs) Because it's hard to predict what you can do to earn and to be the first, right? A. Brown, a popular speaker, uh, uh, researcher, studier, and shame. If you don't know who she is, I do recommend her. She can be crass in some of her language, but she's awesome. Uh, She has a four-minute clip on YouTube talking about this passage. If we had a screen, I might get uh, crazy and show you that, but we don't. So uh, she says, her commentary on it is that this is kids' earmuffs. This is BS, That's what she thinks about the parable. She hates it. And she says she keeps coming back to church in hopes that it changes. (laughs) She said that she wishes the parable went on, that it didn't stop where it did, that it went on, and it said that the people who got overpaid had their wagon break down on the way home, and the amount they got overpaid was exactly the amount it cost to fix their wagon. (laughs) See, the master of the house in the parable is the God figure, is the God type It's representing God, and we are told in this parable that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. So why are we so bothered by it? Why are we so offended by the teaching of this parable? Why do we kind of laugh along with Brene Brown knowing that that's kind of how we feel too? That seems right. Because we so often view and treat our relationship with God through the lens or on the economy of merit, on behavior, on obedience. That's how we see, treat, and respond to God in our relationship with him. As opposed to viewing our relationship to God through the lens, through the economy of grace alone. That we may say grace alone, but the way that we truly, functionally, practically interact and respond to him is not through grace alone. It's through merit. It's through obedience. See, grace is hard and offensive to people who think they have merit before God and to people who want control over their lives. That's another way of saying everyone. (laughs) Everyone's in this category. Everyone seeks to gain control in some area. Everyone seeks to gain some kind of merit before God, some kind of thing that we know and can be certain of how he's going to treat us because of what done how we have obeyed so grace is especially hard for people who are successful it's especially hard for hard-working people grace is difficult for people who are organized who are put together who have a strong willpower and people who traffic in the world of doing good deeds grace in its fullness is hard for us 
The truth is these kind of people make great church members. <laughs> they're volunteer, they're willing to step up, they're willing to do things. They make great church members, but they are often the ones who have a stiff arm out towards grace. They have a stiff arm out towards grace alone. One of the evidences that you and I struggle with grace is that we incessantly compare ourselves to others. We compare with one another. Comparing is another way to say that we judge. We judge each other, right? Based on what? Merit. Based on merit. So why are we so quick to judge others? Like we don't even have to think about doing it. Somebody walks in the door and you're immediately making judgments about them about what they're wearing, about their hair, about how they walk, about who's with them, what they look like, all those things. It is just naturally instinctive for us to judge others. You see, for you to think that you are a hard worker, successful, strong-willed, smart, and do good things, it's always in comparison to what other people are doing. You think you're a smarter person. You think you're more successful. It's not just that you're successful, it's you're more successful than they are. It's not that you're just smart, you're smarter than most people in this area. It's not just that you're a hard worker, you work harder than most of those people over there. The truth is, organizations do this too. Even churches do this. Churches say, we're the missional church, right? We're the missional church. We're the, no, no, we're the authentic church. We get real. We're the reformed church. We have our theology tied in a nice little neat bow, right? Or even we're the grace-centered church, gospel-centered church. All are the, of those statements are usually made in comparison to other churches. That they're not as missional as we are. They're not as grace-centered as we are. That identity is usually being said within the reality of comparing yourselves to other churches. Well, maybe you're still not convinced that you naturally relate to God through merit. Let me ask you this, then. During this sermon, when we're going through the parable, who did you sympathize with? Who did you sympathize with as you read that? Or who do you see yourself to be in the parable? Do you, are you the first worker who's grumbling? Is that who you identify with? Or do you identify with the 11th hour worker who is in silent gratitude and accepts the free gift of God? Another way to get at this is to ask, what causes you to grumble against God? What causes you and prompts your heart to grumble towards him? When has that heart towards God shown up most in your life? I had a long season where I grumbled against God. As most of you know, uh, when Hazel, our oldest, was a month old, I had diagnosed with stage four cancer, and I was, but I was in seminary at this time and finally got my first job in the church, and I thought, now this, I'm finally going towards the path that you've called me. I'm doing your will. I'm pursuing the desires that you put on my heart. This is your call on my life, and you give me cancer now? But the strange thing is, that while that is obviously hard, that's not necessarily the area I struggled the most. It is an area I struggled a lot. But one of the hardest things that was strange for me that was hard internally, almost harder than getting cancer, was accepting all the overwhelming generosity that came in that season of my life. 
that everyone from around the world was doing for me during that time. The truth is, I didn't realize this, but I didn't know how to accept such generosity. I didn't know how to accept such grace. Clear is still hard. <laughs> um, but not only did I not, not know accept it, I didn't want to need it. I didn't want to accept it. I didn't want to need to accept it. There were people on the other side of the world who I will never meet in this life who are praying for me. And they're doing that so that that there was not an hour that goes by where I wasn't being prayed for. I finished treat. I was able to finish my treatment uh, of chemo with at one of the best treatment centers in the world, with no medical debt to speak of. To give you an idea of how generous the people were in my life. And here's the thing. I didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. And the truth is, if I'm being really honest, I wouldn't have done it for them. Because I know my heart. I was helplessly in need, and I hated it. What was so hard is that I can do nothing to pay them back. That's grace. I was offended by grace. God showed me that although I talked a lot about grace, I was actually blind to my tendency to stiff arm it, to fight against it in my own life. One scholar wrote, it's frightening to realize that our identification with the first workers and hence with the opponents to Jesus reveals how loveless and unmerciful we basically are. We We may be more under the law in our thinking and less under grace than we realize. But here's the thing about this parable. That's the point. (laughs) That's the point of the parable. The parable is meant to open our eyes to that reality and that part of all of our hearts, to stiff arm grace, that part that we so naturally go against, that we so naturally don't want to need to accept grace, particularly God's grace. Did you notice how the owner, when he pays them, he switches the normal order of when people get paid. See, normally the first workers are those who get paid first. That's what happens normally. That's the normal routine. But he switches the order so that the last laborers, the 11th hour, the 5 p.m. laborers, they get paid first, and the first laborers get paid last. Why? Because none of this would have happened if he kept the traditional order. If he paid the first laborers first, none of this would have happened. The first workers would have gotten their payment of a denarius that they agreed upon and been satisfied with a hard day's work and gone home, thankful that they had enough money for the day to care for their family. End of parable. That's what would have happened. They would have not have ever seen how much the last workers got paid. It would not have been on their radar. But the order is reversed here to show them, but to show us our hearts, 
to show us what we're like. But much more than that, it's also showing us what the kingdom of heaven is like. The reversed order of the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, nobody earns their status. It is a gift of grace alone. This is what the purpose of parables, the parable of the sower, made clear to us, right? That it's all grace, that citizenship and the kingdom of heaven comes through grace alone and nothing else. Brennan Manning, in the, his book Ragamuff, Ragamuffin Gospel, writes this. The gospel of grace obliterates the two-class citizenship theory operative in many American churches. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is a gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by sheer bounty of a gracious God. Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and weak need who know they don't have it all together. And who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. God rules by grace, not by merit. And how is that possible? How can God rule by grace and not merit? How can God rule in that way? How can God give grace so freely, so generously to those who didn't earn it, to those who didn't work for it, to people who struggle even to receive it, who are quick to stiff arm it? How can he be like that towards us? The answer, again, is because Jesus, the one who's telling us this parable, is the true first laborer. He comes and does all the work. Not just some of it. He does all the work. He keeps the whole law perfectly. In every area that you have failed, in every area and every time you have failed, he has perfectly completed the work that's required for you. Every time you lust, Jesus was pure for you in his actions and his thoughts. Every time you mistreat food or alcohol, Jesus enjoyed them as they were meant to be enjoyed for you. Every time you were harsh towards others, Jesus was compassionate and patient for you. Every time you were selfish with your time and resources, Jesus laid down his life and everything he had for you. Jesus' perfect sinless record is yours. He's done all the work for those who are in him. And because Jesus is the true first laborer, he willingly suffers the biggest injustice and unfair thing of all time. In giving you his perfect record, he actually takes the punishment that yours and my sinful record has earned. You know what that's called? Grace. That's grace. That's the good news of grace that is found only in the gospel. That's what the economy of the kingdom of heaven is like. The parable is meant to open your eyes to the reality that you are the helpless, needy, 11th hour worker. But you and I grumble towards God as if we're the first hour worker. And, and listen to me, God sent his son for you to take your place knowing 
that's what you and I are like. He did it and willingly did it and gladly did it, knowing that we are 11th hour laborers who grumble towards our master as if we're the first hour laborers. When that hits your heart, when you're kissed by grace like that, it's no longer offensive. It's something you can't get enough of. So what is this meant to do to us? Besides make me dehydrated. (laughs) How is this parable meant to grip our hearts? Once we start to grapple with this amazing grace in our lives, what we do is we repent. We repent of fighting and stiff-arming his grace, and we start to receive it more readily. We start to love it, and it stops becoming so offensive to us. The grumble of our hearts turns into a, be a little bit quieter. The volume of the grumble gets turned down in our hearts when we experience his grace. The judgment and comparison towards others that we are so prone to do is no longer needed in our lives because we have received the grace of God. So it's no longer the option of how we are to relate to one another. And we may even begin to rejoice when we see God's grace in others rather than compare, rather than judge, and long for God's grace to be seen and known by others. It's only the grace of God that can turn our hearts from being compulsive comparers to being now cheering companions with each other, to come alongside, to be, to be expectant, to be excited, to see God's grace appear in the lives of others the way it has in you. When you experience this kind of grace, you're set free. You're set free and you're in relationships not in order to get from them, not in order that they meet and fulfill your unspoken needs and expectations, but you're free to be in relationships and to give out of the depth of God's grace for you. Because in Christ, we already have everything. And when that is realized through grace, now we're finally free to start to give. This is what grace does to our hearts. We are not defined by our successes or our failures because Christ has taken our failures and he has given us his success. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The parable, interestingly enough, doesn't have an ending. It just stops. It just stops. And there are a few parables like that. And when that happens, the reason for that is it's an open invitation. There's not the ending. (laughs) It's not written yet. It's an open invitation for everyone who hears it to get God's grace. So if you find your heart thirsting for his grace, the offer this morning is to come drink. The parable says, drink of it until your heart is quenched by trusting in the true first labor in Jesus. My hope and my prayer for us this morning for Redeemer is that we would not just speak about grace and be a grace, the grace church. I do want us to be that. But we would not just speak about it and just be the grace church, but that we would then relate to God and others, not through our merit or our behavior, 
but through his grace. That we would long to and come week in and week out to taste it over and over and over again so that we would be filled with it in such a way that we start to live our lives in light of having been given such a generous gift in the salvation that we have through our great Savior, Jesus. My prayer is that the people would come to Redeemer. Visitors would come. People would come to Redeemer. And they would say, they wouldn't say, man, look at all the things Redeemer's doing. We're going to be doing stuff. That's important. But I don't want them to come and say, look at all the things that they're doing. Look at everything they're doing. But that they would come and maybe, just maybe, they would say, as they observe and they hear and they see the grace-filled church and the people who are impacted by the grace of God, that they would say, is this what the kingdom of heaven's like? Is this what God's like? Is he really that good? Is he really that gracious? You mean I get a denarius too? I've done nothing. In fact, all I've done is done things to unearn, to discredit that I get that. But what if people came here and were so uh, taken by the aroma of grace that they would say, if this is what the kingdom of heaven's like, if this is what God is like, that's what I want. I want Jesus and the amazing grace that comes with him. Amen.